0: This week, I was running errands in the middle of the day and was in my hustle and bustle, these places to go, things to do, type of thing. And I arrived at the dollar store, which don't sleep on the dollar store. You know what I'm saying? There are some real gems in there. You know, you find some real good things there. So if you are sleeping on the dollar store, stop. There's some really good stuff there. And the thrifty people will tell you. And on my way into the dollar store, I was stopped in my tracks. You see, there was a houseless person sitting outside of the dollar store with all of their belongings around them uh, sitting there, and people were just passing them by. And then, in a moment, I see this woman make a beeline for this individual. And as she does, she's carrying a bag in her hand that she had just made a ton of purchases at the dollar store, and she gets down to be at eye contact with this man. And she exchanges over the bag. And this little moment... I felt like I got a glimpse of something. And the thought that crossed my mind was, this is what the kingdom looks like. You see, all around there were people headed into various stores, doing various things with tasks and things to do, places to be, conversations to be had. But in the middle of all of this noise was this beautiful exchange from one person made in the image of God to another, seeing one another's humanity and there was just this exchange of generosity. And I felt really privileged that I got to see that moment. It was almost as if it was just me and them too in that moment, me peering in on the moment that they shared together. This is what the kingdom looks like, moments of beautiful generosity. All of us have various things happening in our lives. One way to categorize that is often a lot of us feel bombarded by the hustle and bustle of everyday life. If you were to listen in our Sunday gatherings, a question that always gets asked is, how are you doing? And the response to that question, nine times out of ten, is either busy or tired. So I know that you feel this. I know that you feel the frenetic pace of life that we are living in. We move from one thing to the next, one need to the next, one purchase to the next. And often, many of us get stuck in the cycle of everyday life. But generosity has a way of breaking that cycle. And maybe this has happened to you. Maybe you are running late for work, but you still decide to stop for that coffee that you've convinced yourself you so desperately need, right, to be caffeinated before the day and you're anxiously awaiting in the Starbucks line or now the human being, which I'm not really a fan of that name, but either way, you're anxiously waiting in line. The car in front of you seems like they're taking forever. What on earth could they possibly be ordering? They better not be one of those food ordering people this early in the morning, right? And then you finally get to your place in line, scrambling for your wallet or your phone to pay, and the barista tells you, don't worry, the person in front of you took care of it. It stops you in your tracks. Suddenly, you feel guilty about all the complaining you were doing about them taking so long in front of you. And secondly, you're just encountered with this moment of generosity. You're just confronted by this moment of generosity. And often, what it does in you is it begets generosity in you. Suddenly, you feel compelled to be like, let me get the person behind me. And in all the chaos of being caffeinated early in the morning, there's these moments of generosity that break through. You see generosity has a way of pointing towards towards something outside of our everyday experience. Something outside the pool and the current of our cultural moment towards something we all deeply long for. Generosity has a way of cutting through the noise of everyday life and giving us glimpses into the kingdom. We are in a series as a community entitled the Sunday gathering. Liturgy, formation, and the people of God. We're as a community, we've been slowing down to examine why we do what we do when we gather. And today, we're going to be talking about why we set apart a time each week to give. Now, I realize for some, the room just got a little slightly awkward. Here it is, the money talk, right? Not super stoked about this. This church was going great, and then all of a sudden, he hits us with this one. Or you brought a new person, and it's their first time here, and of all the luck that you had, this is the talk that you bring them to, right? I just want to name that. Um, We don't talk about this every week, so don't feel like this is our appeal every single week. But it is important for us to have a conversation about why we do what we do, specifically, bless you, our giving liturgy. Now, if I'm totally honest, of all the things we do on the Sunday gathering... The conversation about initiating a giving liturgy was the thing I was most uncomfortable with. Why? Because I didn't want to make anyone feel like we were begging or asking for their money. I realized that as we have this conversation, it's not in a vacuum, right? There's preachers in sneakers, in private jet planes, and all of this other stuff that kind of gets involved in that conversation. And so I realize that when you in step into an environment like this, especially if you haven't been around the church, or you have maybe a storied past with the church, conversations at m- about money can be challenging or difficult. And so I, I just want to name that, that that's in the air. Now, if you take a look at our building, there are no private jets around here, trust me with that, right? You walk to the back, we got like stucco falling off, please don't look at the ceiling or the walls, right? There's, there's things <laughs> happening in the life of this community where we prioritize money elsewhere, but... I also was confronted a few years ago as I came to approach the topic through expository preaching. We were coming through a series of verses, and it came time to have this conversation. And then I went and looked back on a lot of my messages that I preached throughout the church's history, and I had yet to preach a single sermon about money. Now, for some of you, you're like, thank God, right? For others of you, you feel the tension, too, because Jesus had a lot to say about money. If you go through the gospel accounts, they say that uh, about 17 of Jesus' 39 parables were about finances. They estimate that 25% of Jesus' teaching directly or indirectly talk about money. Imagine if you came here and every fourth Sunday we were having conversations about money. You feel the awkwardness of that? Jesus did not. You see, what we do with our resources is deeply interwoven to our apprenticeship with Jesus. Jesus is concerned deeply with our connection to wealth and possessions. It was when I realized that my own apprehension was keeping our community from really wrestling with the teachings of Jesus. You see, as a community, we want to be like Jesus. And to be like Jesus means we have to wrestle with the very teachings he gave, including his teachings around our resources. Right, if our goal as a community is to be with, Je- be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did, then we have to lean into all of Jesus' teachings, not just the ones we love, regardless of how they may land on modern ears. And so if we're going to take Jesus seriously, we cannot avoid a conversation around money. Now, what I want to do today is I want to uh, begin our time walking through one of Jesus' teachings about money, And then what I'd like to do is transition us into actually going through our giving liturgy and kind of breaking down why we say what we say every time we pray that prayer. And then I want to lead us into a time of response. So we begin with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 where he says this, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. First, for Jesus, money is a matter of the heart. There's often a gap between what we say we care about and what we actually care about, right? What we say that we're for and what we're actually for. And the proof is in how we steward our resources. According to Jesus, money is a window into what rules your heart. It has been famously said, I can see what you care about by your bank statement, right? Most of us, a lot of us, care a lot about eating out, right? Care a lot about subscription-based services, right? Care a lot about Amazon Prime, if we're really honest. Our, Our resources and how we spend them shows what we actually care about the most. Now, if I could be really honest, I don't think the greatest temptation for our community is materialism, right? The quest for wanting new and better, though I think that temptation is there I don't think it's our greatest one. I don't think that our greatest temptation is even that of hedonism, which is like stacking pleasure and experience. For our community, I think our greatest temptation is comfort. We love to be comfortable. We love to organize our lives around the things that make us most comfortable. I think if we were to begin to examine how our resources are used, a great deal of our resources are spent on ourselves and are especially spent to make our lives more comfortable. I think as we begin to have a conversation about giving, the kickback is that we don't want giving to impede in our lives, right? If I could give and not feel it, happy to do so. But if it starts to impede on the way that I've organized my life, the things that I like to do, And thanks, but no thanks, right? I appreciate that. And so uh, Tim Keller says this, money flows effortlessly to that which is its God. And I think often our bank statements would say that our God is the God of comfort. We just want a nice white picket fence, two-and-a-half car garage kind of life, the true American dream. So if we're not careful about how we think about our finances, Jesus warns us that this can lead down a dangerous path. I want to share a quote from Paul David Tripp, who if you don't know him, he's legit. And uh, it's a little bit of a lengthy quote, so stay with me, okay? Promise? I already lost half of you. Everybody, welcome back. Good to see you. We're going to do a quote real fast. It's a little long. Stay with us. Paul David Tripp says this, money is a powerful thing. On one hand, it can expose me to danger, while on the other hand, it can be used of God to reveal the need of my heart and through me to bless the lives of others. You and I will interact with money in some way. That interaction is one of the things that will set the direction of our lives. When it comes to money, scripture leaves little room for comfortable neutrality. Money will be a blessing to you, or it will be a curse. It will be a tool in the hands of a God of grace, or it will be a doorway to bad and dangerous things. Like two sides of a physical coin, there are two spiritual sides to money. Each side calls to you. Each side holds before you a vision and promises. Each side asks not just for the investment of your money, but the allegiance of your heart. The battle between the two sides of the money coin wages in the heart of every person this side of eternity. Money is a danger. Money is a blessing. What will it be for you? Where the rubber meets the road in everyday life, you will not answer this question once. No, you will answer it again And again, as day after day you are greeted with false promises and truth, each voice telling you what to do with the money in your hand. All right, that's it, guys. Have a good day. Thank you for coming. Right? That's it. That's it all, man. Trip just laid it out. But this brings up the question then well, is money always bad? Absolutely not. All throughout the scriptures, we find biblical figures who were incredibly wealthy that God blessed. It's not whether or not money is bad. It's what we do with it and our heart posture towards it. The simplest way to think of money is just as a tool. It just matters whose hands it's in, right? A hammer could be used to build a house. It could also be used to destroy windows, right? All about whose hands it's in. Same is true of money and our posture Towards it. So it's not in the having or not having of money, but in our heart towards the money. In Paul's letter to his Timothy to his protege to his protege, Timothy, I guess his Timothy, if they're that close, um, says this those who want to get rich fall in temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root. Of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul is warning Timothy about the danger of money and what happens when followers of Jesus find themselves entangled in its grasp. And so the issue is not having money, it's loving it and looking to it for something more than what it is. And so, We must get our vision rightly ordered when it comes to money. And this is what Jesus says next. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, at first read, it could seem like Jesus just switches gears. Right, On one hand, Jesus is saying, hey, where your treasure, your heart is also. And let's talk about your healthy eyes, right? It seems like, where are we going, Jesus? You know, like, I could kind of understand here, like, how I see things could be good or bad, but it seems, I don't know, rather a jump that we're making here. And it's because we're missing a key important thing of context here. In Jesus' day, to say that somebody had healthy or unhealthy eyes meant to say that somebody was generous or stingy. So if someone said, you have unhealthy eyes, they're saying, you're stingy or you have healthy eyes, then you're somebody who is generous. And there's all sorts of background there about how the eyes are a lamp to the body, a way of letting light in. There's like some imagery happening there we don't have time to get into today. But I want you to notice, even in some of your translations around the word healthy, you'll find a little footnote. Uh, Jonathan T. Pennington talks about this word that's translated healthy. It's the, it's the word haplous. Haplaus does not simply mean happy, as translations render it, It is the ancient idea of singularity or wholeness, the center of the idea or virtue that the whole Sermon on the Mount has been promoting. Haplos communicates the sense of generosity and kindness, singularity or wholeness that is free from envy, greed, and malice. So, in one word, whole person generosity. This idea of being healthy is the idea of being whole, and that wholeness overflowing into being a generous person. So if someone had a healthy eye, it meant that they saw the world through a lens of wholeness and generosity. If they had an unhealthy eye, this this means they saw the world through a lens of division and greed. And so when we do not see our finances rightly, we can be drawn into this posture of greed. Here's the tricky thing about greed. Often, we're blind towards it. We don't perceive it for what it actually is. Notice Tim Keller again. He says this. As a pastor, I've had people come up to me and confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin. Almost. I can't recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and people around me. Greed hides itself from the victim. The money God's modus operandi includes blindness to your own heart. Even as we're having this conversation, there may be uncomfortability in your body. Oh, I hate that we're talking about this. Here's all I want to ask. Why? That's it. Why? Why is it so uncomfortable for us to have this conversation? When we have conversations about forgiving our enemies, loving those who wound us, right? We're all for that. But suddenly, when we shift the conversation towards finances, things get tricky. Why? And I leave that with you guys. Deal with that as you will. All right, moving on. So the way that we avoid the deceptive nature of greed is to first become aware of its lies to first become aware of the myths that we believe about money. First is the myth of self-ownership. We think, as modern Western Americans, that we are owned by nothing. Don't tread on me, I'm free, baby. To that, I wanna respond with Kelly Capix quote. He says this, there still remains an underlying problem that can be hard for us to recognize, much less admit. We live under the burden and illusion of self-ownership. Think of commercials that tell women that are f- that at 45 years old they should still look 28 and if not, it's their fault for not buying their product. Parents are promised for their children for their children's future success if they will only pay for the finest education available and attend every extracurricular sporting activity, from the clothes that we wear to the food we eat, The reality is that convention, society, and a complex set of other competing forces own us. We are owned by our possessions, owned by those around us, owned by people whom we have never met but who exert incredible power over our lives in some of the subtlest and most sinister ways. We think we are owned by nothing. And Jesus' invitation is Well, check where your treasure is. That's going to reveal where your heart is. Now, next is the myth of self-sufficiency. And this myth is essentially this. I can meet all my own needs. I'm not in need. Right? John Tyson says this. Money creates space, comfort, and distance between the challenges and annoyances of life. It creates an illusory blanket of security around our place and position in the world. For a majority of people in this room, being without is something they do not know, right? If you're hungry, you just simply peruse over to the pantry. If you don't feel like cooking, you drive on down to the drive-thru. If you feel like not leaving the house, don't worry, we'll door dash something. That is foreign to most of the world. That is not common anywhere else, really, except for in places of affluence and wealth. And so when we read the scriptures and we read about rich people, we never think it's us, right? That's not us. Like, I know I'm at, you know, I know what I have going on or whatever, but I'm not a rich person. Studies show that if you make anywhere over the minimum wage in the United States of America, you are in the top 10% of the world. Flip it. If you make more than minimum wage in the United States, you make more than 90% of the world. If I were to just present that to you, what do you think about the top 10 percenters? You'd say, they're rich. And I'm like, that's you. Just kidding, right? (laughs) Not me. And so we have to wrestle with that. And so as we come to the passages where Jesus is saying it's easier for a person to pass through the eye or easier for a camel to pass through an eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. We think, yeah, those rich people really have something going on and it's like, no, we are that person. When we read about the parable uh, or the story that Jesus has with the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and says, "I've done everything. What must I do?" And Jesus says, "Sell all you have and give to the poor." Won't do that. Have a good day, Jesus." And we're like, rich young ruler, so foolish, right? We are him. And so, I don't stand here as somebody who does this perfectly well. What I don't want you to think is that um, because I'm the one teaching on the content, that it means that I've always mastered it. Brothers and sisters, I'm a pilgrim with you. And this week, Jesus was just confronting me on things that lay claim to my heart, specifically in the areas of comfort? And would I be willing to be uncomfortable to be more generous? And I did not like that question at all. And so I don't sit with you as somebody who's arrived saying, hey, come join me here. I'm with fellow pilgrims saying, what would it look like, guys, for us to take Jesus seriously in his teachings with money? For us to allow the word to be a mirror that shows us what we actually look like and how how might we say yes to more. All of this, all of these myths can lead us to a place of having a divided heart. Jesus goes on. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money in some of your translations, the word here in money in verse 24 is actually the word mammon. The idea of mammon is this. It's mammon is money personified as a power that lays claim on humanity. What the biblical authors do is they use this category of money and they they, 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 they make it personified, giving it um, human-like qualities and that it grasps and lays hold and keeps captive humanity. Now, Where money becomes mammon is when money becomes your master. Notice Jesus' words, you can't serve two masters, both God and money. Douglas Jones says this, for Jesus, mammon wasn't one idol among equals. He singled it out, hear this, as the direct competitor to God. He never contrasted the idols of sexuality, of knowledge, or the earth in such stark opposition to God. Jesus never said, you can't serve sexuality in God or knowledge in God, though those were idols too. You know the one thing that Jesus mentions, um, one of the things that Jesus mentions in the parable of the sower that chokes out the word? It's the delusions, the lies that money tells. That 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 has the power to choke out the word. Now, there's so much more to be said about our relationship with our resources um, that we don't have time to get into today. But what, I want to lay, but what I did for you so far is kind of laid the groundwork for our dispositions towards our finances and how those are integrated with our spirituality. And what I want to do next is actually talk about why we do this in the Sunday gathering. And so each Sunday, as a community, we pause to do what? To give. Now I realize for some, especially the new people, this may be the most awkward part of service. Right? All these people are suddenly praying this prayer around you. You're like, I didn't get the memo. What's happening here? Right? Um, I realize it can be awkward, but rest assured, we don't take a formal offering here. So I want to relax you and say that at the end of this service, there's not going to be a gentleman who just comes behind you with a golden plate and just hands it your way. Right? And now there's something expected of you. One of the things that we value here at Zion is giving in secret. We really think that honors Jesus. Uh, Jesus says that we are not to let our left hand know what our right hand is doing. And so we honor that place. But as a community, we think it's important to, together as a community, worship through giving. And so giving can happen from the comfort of your own device and your own seat. Or you could discreetly make your way back to the back of the room and give it our build-the-house station. But we value that secrecy in giving. It's a priority for us. But because of how important giving is to us, we create space for it. Each Sunday... We enter into a time of giving by praying a prayer together. Now, hear what may have happened, and you may not have realized it. You may have begun to memorize this prayer without even realizing it, because week in and week out, we begin to praying it. Holy Father, there is nothing I have that you have not, you're already starting going. See? We're wiring our hearts towards the truth about money every time that we pray that prayer. Now, this prayer is formed from all different passages of Scripture, and it's kind of a compilation of some of the things that Jesus and the authors of Scripture teach us and remind us about our relationship with our finances. And so every week, we declare as a community what is true and what we believe about our relationship with money. Now, can I have a pastoral word for a minute? I want to encourage this community. You guys are incredible It is a joy to lead and to love this community, and I just want to start by saying, well done. I don't think we do enough of that, Um, and so I want to. I want to say, well done. Every single year, our community has grown in giving. Every single year, our community has grown in this act. As a part of our commitment to financial transparency at Zion, every year we publish a financial and ministry report showing you how every dollar was used. And so if you have questions, it dates all the way back to 2019 when our church was able to receive finances after we got all our legal stuff done. And so every year, we post how we spend our money. We realize a lot of churches don't do this. This isn't our – that's what we value. We value financial transparency. If your job is to invest in the kingdom, we want to tell you how your money is being used. And every single year, the dollar amount goes up because of you because of your generosity. And so I just want to say thank you. Now, last winter, I called our community to rally together to sow a seed into the future of our church. And our community rallied together to give over $5,000 to, to our In Your Midst Giving campaign. And this money funded the renovations happening in the prayer room and some other renovations that are going to be coming to the children's ministry here soon. Your generosity sowed that seed into the life of our community, above and beyond your regular giving right? And that doesn't even account for the people who weren't giving and decided to say yes to start giving. And so I want to say, well done. I also have a story that I want to tell. Brittany, who leads our mission and justice initiatives here, hit me up I think on a Tuesday saying that she needed to collect donations that next Sunday for uh, one of our strategic partners. And I was like, I don't think that's enough time. We're not giving people enough time. And she's like, watch. And so she put it out on our Slack channel on a Tuesday. And sure enough, come Sunday, all of these donations started pouring in. Absolutely dumbfounded me at how willing our community was to respond to needs happening in our community. Just to say yes to the areas where it hurts in our community and to show up and to give towards that. And so I just want to say thank you. That makes a joy to lead a people that are hungry to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. And so well done. And with that word, here's what I want to say. And isn't it exciting that it's only the beginning? That we're just getting started? That we're going to be able to impact more people and minister to more lives as this thing continues to grow and mold and shape, and as we become people who are more formed into people of generosity. It is an honor to lead this community thank you for all that you do. Well done. Give yourselves a round of applause. Yeah. That was weak. Not golf claps. Come on. Yes. Now, in my conversations with a lot of you, I have seen you guys jump into the invitation to give because of our liturgy together. Some of you have never given, have actually decided to give for the first time, some of you who are giving sporadically have decided to actually begin to give consistently because the only way we can plan for the future is if we have consistent money coming in. And some of you who are giving consistently have actually taken the step to begin to give sacrificially. And so what I want to do with our time remaining is I kind of want to walk through our prayer. And I want to break it down into three movements. Generosity is worship. Generosity is formation. And lastly, generosity as encounter. We begin our prayer with these words, Holy Father, there is nothing I have that you have not given me. All I have and am belong to you, bought with the blood of Jesus. As we open our prayer, we are reminding ourselves that everything is a gift from God. From the vast array of the universe to a single blade of grass, it's important that you know this, God owns everything. All throughout the scriptures, we see this fundamentally affirmed. Psalm 89 is one example. It says this, the heavens are yours, and yours also the earth. You founded the world and all that is in it. As creator, it means everything belongs to him. And it's important for us to understand that God did not need to create. He longed to. He wanted to. The gift of creation is completely unnecessary. Nobody forced his hand, but he chose to engage in this act. Acts 17 says this, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands and is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he, gives, he himself gives everyone life and breath, and just to fold in everything, and everything else. Everything is a gift from him. So as we begin this conversation about resources and possessions, it's easy for us to th- easiest for us to think that everything belongs to us, and I'm sharing with God. Other way around. Everything belongs to God, and he shares with you. And God's generosity doesn't flow out of a need, but out of wanting to share in his love. The GOAT, C.S. Lewis says this, God, who needs nothing, loves into existence holy superfluous creatures in order that he may love and perfect them. Again, Kelly Capix says this, the God who did not need to create, who is eternally complete in himself, is the God who does create, who continues to uphold what he's created, and who takes a personal interest in each life And molecule of creation because of his generosity and his love God chooses to partner in creation with us and this means that everything is a gift and the gift from our generous father notice James line. he says this every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of heavenly lights now pause some of you are thinking but I worked really hard I acknowledge that. No one is taking that away from you for a second. There are some of you who have climbed out of poverty and have have changed your family trajectories because of hard work. God honors that. I honor that. But I also want to frame that in saying, there is nothing you did all on your own. You are using borrowed breath with talents and abilities you did not earn and a world teeming with potential you did not create. So if you really want to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you don't even begin with boots, okay, or feet, right? You got to start somewhere else. God honors and blesses hard work, but you begin with the potential of the earth that he has created. Now, this is good news, that everything comes from him. The good news is that we are not on our own. We belong to Jesus as a part of his creative order. The good news about Jesus is that we've been bought at a price, that God has given us his spirit as a seal of this ownership of us. And his desire is to fill the earth with his glory, that all the earth, all creation would see his goodness. Again, Capic, God freely creates out of his delight to share his own goodness with others. God is full and makes full, and thus he creates. He invites us to enjoy the feast and extend his gracious hospitality and care to others. So everything is a gift. Now, if it's a gift, that means that everything, you're, everything you've been given, you're responsible to steward. Now, this is a theme that we see all throughout the scriptures is this theme of stewardship. Every resource, every gift, every opportunity is something for you to steward well. Mark Allen Powell says this, we own nothing, but manage everything. God trusts us in a way that we are reluctant to trust each other, or even ourselves, and places confidence in us beyond anything that our record thus far would seem to warrant. God has given over the potential, the life teeming in the earth, over to humanity to do something with it. This is what we've been called to steward. Now. How we steward our resources then is how we thank God for the gift that we've been given. How we manage what God has given us is how we tell God, thank you. And as we begin to partner with him in what he's doing in the earth, we begin to see gospel economics. Paul is known for all kinds of things. Famous church planner, right? He started churches all over the Gentile world, reaching a whole new segment of people. He wrote a ton of what we call the New Testament, as you find his letters in there. Um, And also famously, like, stood down Peter as he was being inconsistent. And, like, right, there's all sorts of stories around Paul. You want the story that nobody ever talks about? Paul's fundraising venture. Nobody talks about that. But if you look at it, this was the thing Paul spent most of his ministry doing, fundraising for a church in Jerusalem. That does not sound like dreamy at all, right? Church planner, yeah! Confronting people who are hypocrites, yeah! Fundraising money for a church, no, right? Like, that doesn't sound all that fun. Michael Gorman says this. Paul's desire to collect funds for the support of the church in Jerusalem was a significant concern in his ministry, but not one that normally receives attention equal to the weight he assigned it. Paul mentions it in four of his letters, Romans, Galatians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, or 1 and 2 Corinthians. He made extensive efforts to collect funds in at least three regions, Galatia, Macedonia, and Achaia. And it affected both his travel plans and his choice of traveling companions and envoys. It is likely that Paul's preoccupation with this collection carried with it some cost, criticism, lack of support, questions about integrity and consistency, especially in Corinth. So when we read the scriptures specifically the epistles the New Testament letters it's like we're listening into one part of the conversation. Have you ever been in a car with somebody and they take a phone call and you're listening only to their end of the conversation you're trying to figure out like who are they talking to what are they talking about? That's what happens when we read the scriptures. In 2 Corinthians Paul is engaging in this conversation about a collection that he has been talking about with the Corinthians. He showed up to them and said, hey, guys, the church in Jerusalem is really struggling. Let's put some money together to help them. And they're like, yeah, cool, come on. And then Paul kept beating that drum, and the community got suspicious. They're like, we don't like this. Why do you keep asking for our money, Paul? You're kind of being kind of weird, right? So Paul hears word that, that their total savings for this church in hurting is zero dollars, not a dime. And so Paul writes his second letter to them. Now, you're Paul. You're an apostle you're a church planner. you've seen the Lord Jesus, safe to say you have some pool, you know? And you could kind of pull rank and be like, hey, guys, all due respect, it's Paul. Do what I'm saying, right? You could totally do that. But what does Paul do? He instead, like his rabbi Jesus, tells a story. And he tells a story of a community in Macedonia. This community we read letters to known as First and Second Thessalonians. Paul has this to say. He says, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he says this, In the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, check that, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. I want to put that math up there for you. So Paul says, next slide, please. Again? Cool. Severe trials, check. Extreme poverty, check. Overwhelming joy, okay? Rich generosity. That math makes no sense. We're, really, we're in a lot of trials, a lot of bad things are happening in our community, and on top of that, we're super poor, but we're also filled with joy, and that's going to be leading to rich generosity? That's gospel math. It makes no sense on paper, but it's exactly what happens when a community is confronted by the generosity of the God in whom they serve. When a community encounters the grace with Jesus, something happens to them. You know the, Paul, the word Paul uses for generosity? It's the, he, it's the Greek word charis, which my fellow Bible nerds know is also the word for grace and also the word for gifts. That's not on accident. Paul is doing that on purpose. Paul is saying generosity is a direct outflow of grace. When we experience grace, God's grace, God's generosity towards us, the only normal response is to be generous in return. Tim Mackey says this, material generosity is the only reasonable response to the gift that has been given to us in the life of Jesus. If you aren't materially sharing with others, it shows a deep disconnect in how you think about the Christian faith. So as we begin to see our stuff rightly, we first see everything is a gift. So that means we're responsible for stewarding everything And the only right response to God's generosity towards us is to be generous and kind. And this is how we worship him. This is how we say thank you. Next, generosity is formation. We continue our prayer by saying, to spend everything on myself and to give without sacrifice is the way of the world that you cannot abide. Every single day, you're being formed by the culture and values around you. To use Jesus' language, the world has unhealthy eyes when it comes to resources. Namely, it's characterized by duplicity and greed. It seems that we live in a world where everybody says one thing, but actually means another. On the outside is all this language of like community and we're here for each other. But if you watch the lives of individuals, it's about hoarding and keeping for myself. Like we'll use this language of helping one another out, but when it comes to actually me sacrificing that, sacrificing for that, someone else will do it right? Someone else in a better situation than me will do that. It's always getting pushed off on someone else. There's duplicity there. But also, there's greed. Our culture is completely fine with taking advantage of others for our own personal gain. We don't see each other as partners or co-heirs or brothers and sisters. We see one another as hindrances from getting what we really want. This is the posture of greed, the Bible opens that the world is a place of abundance, but it's us who have made it a place of scarcity because of our greed, because of not, not just wanting more, but also wanting more than another. So, Kevin Van Hooser says this, the community of believers, then, represents a prophetic counterculture that challenges the gods and myths of its day with regard to which world and life view best fulfills humanity. So then followers of Jesus come in the midst of clawing and scratching and, 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 and fighting for resources as breaths of fresh air saying, do you have need? Let me meet that. What do you need? Let me help. Stopping the world in its tracks. Now, what would it look like for our community to become a community formed by being a prophetic counterculture, pushing back against the world and its metrics of success? Well, it would look like following the way of Jesus, which is the way of generosity. We continue in our prayer, but generosity is the way of those who call Christ their Lord, who love him with free hearts and serve him with renewed minds. All throughout the scriptures, we get this picture of not just fulfilling a set of obligations or checking off a list of rules, but instead allowing the reality of the kingdom to permeate deep into our being. We allow God's grace to confront our greed and duplicity, to make us whole and generous. We become the kind of people for whom generosity is a way of life, not just under compulsion, but with free hearts. Scholar Anna Case Winters says this, people who have put possessions in their place are less likely to be in a state of anxious striving to accumulate and protect possessions with callous disregard of the demands of justice or the needs of others. Consequently, they are free to be generous with others. I love that, that they are no longer in the state of anxiously accumulating for themselves or callous disregard for the needs of others, but they're free To be generous. So what does that look like? It looks like defiant generosity. We say this, who withstand the delusion of riches that chokes the word, whose hearts are in your kingdom and not in the system of the world. When we give, we push back against the lies that money tell. Lies that Jesus says in the parable of Sower, have the power to choke out the word, we push it back against those. When we give, we detangle ourselves from its grip and declare our hearts are in another kingdom altogether. Kent Hughes says this, every time I give, I declare that money does not control me. Perpetual generosity is a perpetual de-deification of money. Jesus says that we are to invest our resources into the kingdom where moth and vermin and cannot destroy and thieves cannot come in and steal. So what would it look like for you in an act of defiance to become a person of generosity? Lastly, generosity is a way of encounter. We pray this. I am determined to increase in generosity until it can be said what? That there is no needy person among us. I am determined to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money that you may trust me with true riches. Above all, I am determined to be generous because you, Father, are generous. It is the delight of your daughters and sons to share your traits and to show what you are like to all the world. Amen. First, we encounter God through others. Does God need anything from you? Not a rhetorical question. Does God need anything from you? Okay, half of you don't believe me. Does God need anything from you? No. He's not in heaven strapped for cash. Like, dude, can you lend me a twenty? Things are real rough up here, you know. Peter's got a big appetite. I'm always paying for his bill, dude. Do you think you could spot a brother? Absolutely not. All of the earth is his. All of creation is his. So he does not need from you. He's not like, dude. Things are real tight. Think you could spare five? Absolutely not. He wants you to partner with him. He wants you to join in what he's doing. Could God miraculously let stuff just happen and appear? Yeah, he does it all the time in the life and ministry of Jesus. In the prayer room this morning, we were even talking about how Jesus has a coin appear in a fish's mouth. Just for fun, for kicks, just to show what he can do, right? There's a story of the loaves and the fishes, where this little boy has a lunch and Jesus multiplies his lunchable and feeds 5,000 people. He has no need. He wants you to partner with him. And the way that we partner with him is through our giving. It's through showing where our hearts are actually. It's not that he has need of it. It's he wants you to join him in what he's already doing. Our vision at Zion is that we would become a people so moved towards generosity that it could be said in this room, there is no needy person among us. That's our goal. That's where we're going. We want to get to a place where anybody who would walk in this room would not leave here having need. That's our vision. And so... We encounter God often through the generosity of others. Let me frame this for you right now. What's happening right now is because of the generosity of others. People who have gave to have the chairs you're sitting in, pay for the heating that's happening right now in the room, right? Lights, bathrooms, the whole shebang, coffee in the back, all of this is because of someone else's generosity. Someone said, I want to give so that others may encounter you're living in it right now. My own life is shaped by stories of other people's generosity towards me and my family. And I stand in that beautiful reality. The church becomes a place of tangible grace as we meet one another's needs. And so, as we continue increasing in generosity, that's the goal, to move towards no needy person among us and that God would be encountering, people would be encountering God through others. Second, we encounter God through giving. When we prove ourselves trustworthy with the things that we've been entrusted with, it brings about blessing in our life. I want to stop right there. You may have heard me say, if I give $10, get $100 back. No, not what I'm saying, right? There are people who do what I do who say, if you give one good generous gift now, the Lord will bless you tenfold. You know the ones I'm talking about. TBN, 10 o'clock at night, they're there, right? You've seen them. That's not what's happening here. That's bad theology. That's com- they say that's coming from a homeless rabbi who said of himself, I have no place to lay my head and whose whole ministry was funded by a group of wealthy women who were helping Jesus go from town to town to town. Jesus didn't know where his next meal was coming from, much less was he gonna promise tenfold for your generous donation today, right? He's not doing any of that. Sorry, that's a bad accent, but you know exactly the kinds of people I'm talking about, right? Fancy suits the whole thing, I digress. Moving on. That's not what's happening here. But when you give, here's what you realize, like Jesus said. It's really better to give than to receive. That's what you find. Again, Kelly Capix says this. We are healed as we move with God in motions of generosity. God's gifts are wonderfully ironic. When we experience it, we, we often experience his love for us most when we love others. As conduits of love we find ourselves strangely reinvigorated through hard work and humble service. In other words, it's so much better to give than to receive. And you realize that as you're able to be more generous, it actually blesses you more. It blesses you more than it probably blessed the other person. And that's gospel economics. I realize that doesn't make sense in your checkbook, but it makes sense in the kingdom. Now, Lastly, we encounter God through acts of great love, through small acts of great love. Generosity has a way of cutting through the noise of everyday life and giving us glimpses into the kingdom. When we don't live like everyone else, clawing and scratching and fighting for a leg up, but instead we move at the pace of love through acts of generosity, it is a powerful moment that others can encounter Jesus by. First Peter says this, Live such good lives among the pagans that when they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Peter is saying, would your life be so compelling that even when other people hate you, as they examine your life, it'll ultimately bring them into the place of worship of God. Live in that kind of a compelling life. What if we lived in such a compelling way that our whole city was turned upside down by a tiny community marked by generosity. That in the noise of everyday life caused people to stop dead in their tracks and receive and experience God's love and then do the same for others. Like that that encounter I had outside the Dollar Tree would be what people experience every time they encounter someone from our community, a breath of fresh air. They're living by a whole different set of values here. I feel impressed to say this, as I was putting this sermon together. There may some of you be here, some of you might be in here discouraged because you wish you could give more. That you find yourself in a lower economic tier and you wish you could give more, your heart is to give more. But here's what I wanna remind you. Giving is not measured in its amount, it's always measured in its sacrifice. There's that story where Jesus sees uh, the, the poor woman dropping a couple of pennies to give towards the church. And there's Pharisees making a big huff and puff about their check that they're signing, right? They've got their big pen and the big old oversized check, and they're smiling for the photos. Look at how much we're giving. And Jesus says, that gift over there that nobody saw, that's the one that the Father sees. This is all show. And so I want to encourage those who are just doing what they can, well done. The Lord sees you. He sees what you give, and guess what? It blesses him. It blesses him. It's not measured in how many zeros are after that. It's measured in what you gave up to do that. The Lord sees that. Mother Teresa said this. Not all of us can do great things, but we can all do small things with great love. That is hung up um, in her place in Kolkata, and all of the people who serve under her ministry see that mounted up on the walls. Small acts, great love. Small acts, great love. We're going to enter into a time of response, so if you join me in standing. And we laid a whole theology of response last week, so if you missed that, tune in on the podcast, but... I realize this is probably not your favorite sermon. You're probably not gonna like share this with all your friends saying, look at this great message that was taught, right? They're gonna think that you're trying to fleece them for some money or something. (laughs) I realize that, but I also realize that there's an invitation from the spirit here. That God is actually inviting us into something as a community. And he's given us glimpses of that already. He's given us glimpses of what happens when we are a people who are marked by generosity. It begets beauty. It begets people coming to know the Lord Jesus. It begets more generosity. And so I feel that we're being invited into something right now. And so what we want to do is we want to create a time to respond to what the Lord may be speaking to us today. There are some of you here who this message was confronting, uncomfortable, Expose things in your heart. And Jesus does not expose to condemn or to make you feel guilty or to make you feel shame. He exposes because he wants to invite you into something more. And some of your relationship with money has been challenged. And it's not so that you feel bad about it, but it's because Jesus wants to invite you into something far more beautiful. If that's you, I want to ask you to respond by just coming forward with your hands open saying, Jesus, I want to view my finances rightly the way you do. There are some of you here who are still skeptical. I get that. I understand. And what I love is that Jesus moves at the pace of love. He doesn't kick you along down the road. He walks with you wherever you're at. And so if that's you, if you're in a place where you're just skeptical or skeptical, and you're unsure about all this, but you're saying, Jesus, I wanna, I wanna see things the way you see things. Help change my heart. I want to invite you forward to respond by just coming forward with your hands open. Someone's gonna pray for you.